Hello, hello. This is Ali Tidlawi. Welcome to Talk to Me About Food, a podcast about the forces impacting the American consumers slash eaters' food choices, seen through the lens of a consumer researcher, consumer, human, me. In this show, I muse about the foods we try and buy and explore how we are or will be making, shopping for, preparing, enjoying, and disposing of foods and beverages. On this episode of Talk to Me About Food, I muse about gastrophysics, the science behind enjoying food with all your senses. Under the hot breath of summer, we'd gather around a cozy round table to feast and retether clan bonds that loosen with distance. We lived on the other side of the world. Time. We visited the home country every other year, ripening minds and growing responsibilities. We'd squeeze in so tight I sometimes struggle to move my arms. Aunt next to cousin or niece, next to uncle, next to another cousin slash nephew, next to an esteemed visitor, next to my dad, and so on up to a dozen hands reaching for a piece of bread, a spiced carrot salad, or the main stew in the middle of the table. Even though we gathered like this several nights a week for several weeks, These dinners felt magical every time, and even more so now as varnished memories. The unrelenting laughter is what sticks out the most. Perfumes and colognes filled the space along with the smell of freshly starched clothing. Too much makeup or too little. Bracelets clanging against each other and on the tabletop. Clamor from the kitchen at one of the family venues and the smell of butane and chopped ingredients in that kitchen when I stepped in to thank them for dinner. The feel of a clear plastic tablecloth over the pretty linen one that was either wiped up or replaced between courses. I know the ambiance created by all these sensory cues apart from the food made these reunions pleasurable. The food was mostly tasty, sometimes worthy of anticipation, But I never stopped to think that this multi-sensory stimulation around the table probably made the food seem to taste better, too, until I read Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating by Charles Spence. He is professor of experimental psychology at Oxford University and head of the cross-modal laboratory there. The basic premise of gastrophysics is that all aspects of the eating environment, the where, when, how, and with whom, provide essential sensory cues, and that the eating experience is influenced by multisensory faculties you don't even know you have. I asked Charles for his working definition of gastrophysics. Uh, so for me, gastrophysics uh, is a combination of gastronomy and psychophysics. Okay. Uh, so the gastronomy is there to uh, emphasize it's kind of the, the, the nicer end of the food spectrum that uh, I'm interested in uh, and to sort of separate from food science and sensory science and traditional approaches from the food companies to evaluating uh, new products and off flavors and such like. I'm more interested in working with the, with the chefs and mixologists and baristas and, uh, uh, and food artists, um, the more experimental and maybe creative end of, uh, of food. Um, and the psychophysics is a branch of psychology. Uh, so I am a psychologist, not a chef. Um, 
and it's uh, kind of an attempt to to understand what drives our perception. And normally, psychophysics is a kind of very sort of scientific approach. We stick people in front of a computer screen and show them lots of stuff, and, and see if you change the color or you change something else, how do people's responses change. And I'm trying to take that sort of scientific approach to perception and apply it to the world of food and drink in order to better understand the mind of the diner. And so this is where I think sort of gastrophysics, um, I hope marks a kind of a change in emphasis from the last 30 or 40 years of, um, of molecular gastronomy or modernist cuisine, um, which has all been that sort of science applied to the kitchen uh, mm. to new materials, new techniques, new approaches to cooking and preparation of food. But there's been no real science uh, development around the person who's going to eat that food. And that's where I, as a psychologist, come in trying to understand the science of eating, the science of why we like what we like, uh, and the factors that few of us realize uh, affect our choices, our consumption behavior, and our memories of a uh, what it is we have eaten before. Your thousands of taste buds and the nerve endings in your grinding teeth give you what you think is a very rich, detailed profile of what you consume. Your sense of taste identifies sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami. It helps you classify foods into likes and dislikes. I know, duh, that these preferences vary from one person to another and from one food tradition to another, think insects, for example, is not news either. I didn't know, though, that the sensory perception underlying these preferences can vary too. So cilantro, for example, literally does not taste the same to everyone. The bigger aha is that the bigger driver of our perception of flavor, good and bad, is defined by the smell of what we put into our mouths to chew or swirl around, what we inhale through our nostrils. The orthonasal input is the smaller part of the sense of smell. It's the millions of retronasal neuron receptors behind the roof of your mouth and up into the nasal passages that more precisely register flavor stimuli and help catalog a lifetime's worth of smell-based memories your taste buds just don't. And these food memories stored in your limbic system provide context, complete with detailed nuance and emotional triggers for the next thing you eat or drink. So your sense of smell cues pleasure, enjoyment, satiety, or the lack thereof. Smell complementing and corroborating taste. When you have a cold, you say you can't taste anything. Actually, it's much more likely that you can't smell what you're eating. Here's another example to illustrate the point. Spence points out a research experiment in his book in which respondents were given a sip of still water with only a hint of flavor that no one claimed to detect, let alone identify. It was only when subjects took a sniff, water still in the mouth, that everyone quote-unquote tasted the cherry almond flavor. This cross-modal interplay of the senses is more intriguing with the other senses. Now, there's no doubt we eat with our eyes, but how does this work? For starters, apparently half of our brain's sensory processing power is dedicated to what we see, 
compared with 1% for taste. We are clearly vested in the sense of sight when it comes to eating. Humans appear to be wired to associate different colors with the different basic tastes. A good majority of people across cultures and eating traditions associate the red part of the spectrum with sweetness. Think ripe fruit and veggies. Kind of makes sense. As sort of a corollary, green is tagged to sour tastes. Sour can be correlated with unripe stuff, so maybe this is a reflection of how we experimented with food in our surroundings from the beginning of primate and maybe even mammalian time. Spence cites another experiment which showed that people deemed a reddish-pinkish-colored drink sweeter than a comparable green-colored drink that was actually 10% sweeter. White goes with saltiness, which also kind of makes sense. Dark brown and black are associated with bitter. On top of that, color contrast increases appeal of food on a plate, and visual associations with taste aren't limited to color. Shapes influence our taste perceptions too. Round cues sweet and creamy, while angular shapes are associated with bitter, salty, sour, or carbonated taste. To me, the evolutionary link between round and sweet isn't quite as clear. A ripe, round peach is certainly sweet, but a ripe orange could be as sour as it is sweet, and smooth, bulbous eggplant isn't sweet, even cooked. But there is research out there showing that the same food on a round plate seems to taste sweeter than on a square one. At the same time, an unexpected, unique plate shape adds appeal. There's even more to consuming what you see in front of you or in your hand. Well-organized food on a dish, white or red plate, round or square, is more appealing than food that's jumbled up, that's not composed. And ugly food can make us eat less. Just to illustrate the power of sight in determining how we experience the act of eating or drinking, imagine this. Imagine, and you're going to have to stretch your imagination here, Imagine taking a sip of flavorless water while watching drops of lemon-flavored water falling on an artificial tongue in front of you. Believe it or not, you will likely taste lemon. What's kind of crazy is that just visualizing, imagining yourself eating something you know you enjoy just ahead of actually eating it can make you eat less of the real thing. The book points to an experiment done with M&M's. Speaking of M&M's, the candy that melts in your mouth and not in your hands, we eat with our hands too before our fingers or forks reach our mouths. The weight of cutlery matters. People will say that the same food tastes better if eaten with heavier forks and knives. And there's a reason we put soup or oatmeal in a rimless bowl beyond the practical. Holding a rounded bowl in our hands brings on a sense of comfort and satisfaction, whether the contents are hard or cold. There's some evidence that eating from a held bowl heightens taste appeal. And a rimless bowl makes it seem there's more food in there, which increases perceptions of satiety. The impact of sound on taste is what Dr. Spence has found most surprising in his research over the past decade. In the world of gastrophysics, the... uh most surprising things have been around the impact of ambient sound uh, or music on taste. So we do lots of work on you know, sort of food coloring and 
and various other things that are sort of maybe obvious, maybe not. But what's really surprising and continues to stay surprising is the way that music can affect our tasting experiences. So this is what um, we can call sonic seasoning. We find, for example, that people associate sweet tasting foods with higher pitched music and sounds. Uh, bitter tastes seem to go well with, 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 with low pitched music. Um, mm. And then when we create music that has those sonic properties or we pick music off the shelf that has those properties, we can kind of systematically enhance the sweetness, the spiciness, the salty, the um, bitterness uh, of food and drink. Um, and this is, you know, sort of surprising when we first discovered it um, back in 2009 or thereabouts, uh, but continues to be so. And then just because you think that music doesn't have anything to do with what you're tasting. So how can it be that a piece of music actually changes the taste of, of, of what you are um, enjoying? And that is something that, you know, people are often surprised by still, and that becomes a kind of fun area then to work with people on to try and convince them. It doesn't work on everyone, for, certainly, um, but for those who it does, then it's going to be surprising to them too, and it's nice to kind of bring them in, and uh, and they're very sceptical to begin with, and then for them to have the experience and then to be kind of convinced that here's a, just one of the factors external to the food itself, which nevertheless does impact our tasting. And now we have been testing uh, in the initial studies tens and twenties of people, but then up to hundreds, and recently up, you know, several thousand people at a go uh, in different parts of the world, in Korea, in Japan, in India, in North America, uh, and uh, Europe. Uh, and there, it seems the majority of people share the same associations: that sweet is high pitch, that bitter is low pitch, wherever in the world you go. Um, and it may, it may, in fact. We don't know for sure why people associate particular kinds of musical properties with particular tastes and flavors. But part of the answer might be around how newborn babies uh, across the world, across species, human babies, rat babies, chimpanzee babies, when they're born will stick their tongue out and up for sweet tasting foods, like mother's milk, uh, and eject, stick their tongue out and down for bitter tasting foods, because it might be poisonous. Uh, and we make kind of different kinds of sounds with our tongues up versus down. Hmm. Um, and that association then between a sound quality and a taste is we're all born doing it. It's a statistic of the environment, um, just like the way that foods and fruits go from kind of green and sour and unnutritious to redder and riper and sweeter and, and more energy dense. That's another statistic of the environment. And I think our brains just pick up all these uh, relations and some of them are useful to us like knowing which trees to to get the fruit from based on color and others like the pitch of taste that's just there in the environment but our brain can't tell the difference and just picks them all up and what our research is kind of doing then is is, is, is picking up on uh, some of these associations that sound almost synesthetic mm. but which I think importantly aren't because they're shared across individuals um, and uh, yeah, uh, across cultures so far. I'm sure there are going to be some cultural differences, but there's enough uniformity and consistency to allow us to say that, you know, nine out of 10 people uh, will, will say that the higher pitched music made the chocolate taste sweeter. Let's go. There are only five second tracks. Listen to them and just make a quick first judgment.
That's piece number one. Piece number two. Good. So that second, that latter track that we heard, the deeper kind of cello. White wine? No one. Red wine? Very good. But why? This understanding of sonic, tactile, visual, and olfactory effects on taste and our eating experience overall is not just theoretical, nice-to-know stuff. These discoveries are being leveraged by boundary-pushing chefs as well as large food companies hoping to nudge, to use Charles Spence's word, eaters in different directions. Restaurants keep looking for ways to dial up the diner's experience. Gastrophysics, the new science of eating, cites many examples. There's the Singleton Sensorium, where they dial up the sweetness cues of a whiskey at round tables in a red room playing tinkling sounds. Restaurants featuring Italian dishes would do well to choose Italy-inspired decor, for example. I would have thought it too obvious or cliché to work, but matching the surroundings to the provenance of the menu item makes diners choose more of these dishes. Going beyond the realm of the commercial restaurant experience, I Eat You Eat Me was a performance art project by Mela Yarsma acted out in a few restaurants. The idea was to have people feed each other. You were connected to an eating partner through a hanging set table surface strung by leather bibs over your necks. You ordered what you thought your partner might like and took turns feeding one another. This created an intimate situation in which you had to maintain balance and find ways to communicate, which in turn forced you to break down barriers and to be open to ideas. Maybe the food was more memorable, too. Back to the real world. Some of the more progressive food companies are finding ways to use sound to make us like their products even more. Recall the Sun Chips bag a few years ago? It had been redesigned to make the maximum amount of noise because research showed that the louder the crunch of the bag, the crunchier the chips seemed. They did go too far and had to dial back this disruptive annoyance factor. It's one thing to slightly improve your enjoyment of a snack chip, but the interplay between the senses can address bigger challenges like eating healthier, something the majority of Americans claim to keep trying to do. I asked Charles for his thoughts on this. I think there are a number of um, uh, ways in here to use the new science of eating, uh, gastrophysics, to help uh, sort of nudging uh, consumers uh, towards healthier and more sustainable foods. And that on the one hand, it may be, we sort of do the work around the uh, formulation of familiar brands and products that people know and love, which many of them are trying to you know, reduce sugar, reduce salt, reduce fat content. Um, but when they come, brands do that, consumers don't like the consequences. <laughs> what have you done to our favorite brand? Why does it taste different? Put it back to the way it was. Sure. Uh, so we're looking into ways of, you know, can you use then sweet sonic seasoning to help reduce the sugar? And that's been already trialed in some bars in, in, in China, your coffee shops, where they play sweet music all day so they can reduce the sugar content of the drinks mm. and hopefully keep the perception the same. Um, and we look at, you know, adding sweet aromas to replace uh, calorific sweeteners, again, in sort of um, drinks to to make them a little less unhealthy. So that's what kind of one line. Um, 
And then another part is to, I think, try and take some of the findings that have emerged from our work with with chefs um, and think how they can be incorporated into sort of nudges. And for me, we see, for example, the ways of, you know, making foods taste sweeter by optimizing the color of the plate in the restaurant or the shape mm. or the texture or the feel. Uh, and exactly the same things you can then think about applying to um, packaged goods where for a third of the things we eat, they come direct from the package. So I know that, you know, a round white plate will make a dessert look sweeter than something exactly the same, say, strawberry mousse on a black angular plate instead. Hmm. Uh, and then when I'm thinking about, uh, you know, yogurt, one of the millions of yogurts that people consume direct from the pot every day, um, then, you know, I wonder if, has anyone ever thought about optimizing the color of the, the plastic spoon you might get or the plastic yogurt pot? Because that becomes the plate for those of us who eat direct from the... You're right. And other people have mostly haven't because mostly they didn't believe that these other factors influenced. They kind of focus on the food, but don't think about the everything else. And a lot of our research is saying, no, the plate, the package, the cutlery, the background music, all of these things matter more than you might realize. And we're going to study them uh, and then hopefully optimize designs moving forward. Um, and so working you know, on everything from incorporating insects as an alternative source of protein, right. uh, starting to work on um, uh, legume-based protein products, looking at you know, converting ice cream into a healthy source of food for the elderly, um, and uh, and also sort of leafy greens. I, mean, I never thought I'd write a paper on, on, on lettuce, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it is a nice test case for something that we should all be eating more of, uh, leafy greens. They do have the health benefits, um, and yet, they're not kind of intrinsically attractive because they're not sweet or energy dense, um, tend more often to be perhaps bitter and stronger and more pungent taste like in Rocket. Um, but there, if one thinks about uh, the one hand, I know that eye appeal is important for our work with restaurants and chefs, that you know, a gastro porn, beautiful food art, food porn helps um, draw people in. And that same thing can be applied to a salad you know, if I know if I add more color variety, not just green leaves, but green and purple, uh, uh, that's going to help. If I add more, more colors to the salad, that will help. If I think about how the salad is, is sold in the store, then then the package, uh, the wrapping becomes kind of the plate. So what is the best color, brand color for, um, for one's packaging to make the, the, the lettuce look most vivid and appealing uh, green? Look also, you know, things like jellyfish, um, and again, another food that uh, is popular here, the cultural differences maybe come in that jellyfish is a sort of popular food in parts of Asia, especially Japan, sure. Korea, I guess. But in the Western diet, it's kind of frowned upon or who'd want to eat jelly, anything. I think I've um, ever seen it. <laughs> and so we've, been working with, <laughs> so we've been working with chefs like Joseph Yusef and Kitchen Theory in London um, to, to create dining experiences where people are exposed for the first time to jellyfish uh with beautiful visual presentation of course beautiful tastes combined but also with sonic seasoning so in this case with the sounds of the sea and the sounds of crunch because what the jellyfish have after they've been you know, prepared is kind of they're just crunched they're just texture but without any taste really mm -hmm. and so playing on their desirable sensory properties incorporated into a kind of multi-sensory experience and hopefully that first experience of the western consumer with jellyfish is great then hopefully they'll be tempted or minded to order it or buy it or search it out 
uh, when they've left the restaurant and elsewhere and so you're sort of nudging people into different food behaviors not by telling them that they should or it's good for the environment because those things don't seem to work very well and change mm-hmm. consumer behavior but by leading them in through through sort of sensory appeal and be at the crunch of the jellyfish so we know people love crunch and noisy foods yeah or in the case of insects be it through against the sort of the the, 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 the sonic element or the kind of the, some of the lingering flavors that you might get and then really sort of emphasize those qualities uh, that are desirable to eat healthier and eat less, he also recommends eating bad-for-you food in the mirror or on a mirrored plate, from smaller plates, from red plateware, and to make it more difficult to put stuff in your mouth. Use your non-dominant hand or less familiar utensils. You can try eating better-for-you food from a heavy bowl without a rim and hold the bowl in your hands, both hands. And in general, create meals with more food sensations. Do strive for stronger aromas and flavors. Do throw in a bunch of textures. Don't use a straw or drink ice water during a meal as these things dull the senses. So where is the advancement of gastrophysics leading purveyors of food and eating experiences? What can we expect to hear, touch, taste, or smell? Well, sort of looking to the future, see so a great opportunity for technology. Um, but a lot of the gastrophysics so far has been around sort of modifying the taste of things that we, we are familiar with. So we can make things sweeter by putting them on this plate or with this music or that texture or that plate. Um, but it's all been within kind of the realms of, of our known food experience. Uh, and so what there's a sort of great excitement for currently and working with some chefs on is is you know, can we deliver extraordinary food experiences hmm. given what we know? Can we go beyond gastronomy uh, uh, yeah, and taste and flavor as we know it, as we've experienced it, as we can imagine it? Uh, for that, we're looking at things such as um, working with a magician and chef Yusef to say, you know, can you eat magic? Hmm. And this is sort of something that Madison Park I think, was playing with a couple of years ago. They had magicians doing New York street card tricks at the table, but there's magic and there's food side by side, and you had Chicago bar magic of the, uh, of the, um, the Al Capone era, mm. um, but never has there been edible magic. Mm. Uh, and that's really interesting to say, well, what would it be like? So we like magic, we like food. Could you put them together? Or do I don't want magic happening in my mouth because magic is surprising, it's unexplained, it's mm. okay out there, mm. but it shouldn't be eaten, mm-hmm. who knows? Um, so that's really exciting to, to pursue and through delivering um, ASMR, Mm-hmm. sort of responses and more brands are linked to that. And we did something with Glen Moranji Whiskey creating with video artists, creating these um, short downloadable videos to match three of their whiskeys that were designed to trigger the kind of neck shiver. Mm. And that's kind of an extraordinary response uh, through thinking about, you know, sort of bringing people to tears mm. through food, which is what happens, which many people report with the sound of a sea dish that we worked with Heston Blumenthal on, that's kind of an extraordinary response. Why would you know, a bit of seafood make you cry? Mm. Uh, and you know, and what other magical experiences? Uh, my last example would be one we're working on currently, which is about metallic as a as a as a concept of um, people love metallic things, gold and things, shiny things, yeah. gold, so it's valuable metals. Mm. Um, but metallic test taste is a horrible thing. It's what you get if you're in a hospital. Um, so there's like a it's a strange kind of concept, metallic. Uh, but you know what would it be like to drink something golden 
uh, or metallic liquid. And so then could we use a VR or augmented reality on your smartphone? And we have the sort of technology to do it now where I can put a drink and see it through your mobile device and you can change the appearance. And so give you the opportunity to drink a metallic or a golden mm. liquid that is something you just cannot physically create and might again be you know, extraordinary in taking us beyond to make us cry, surprise, magic, shiver, uh, awestruck. I'll leave you with another fascinating angle to what we're learning from gastrophysics. As Charles puts in his book, no matter how good or bad a meal, it will never last more than a few hours. We cannot correctly recall the taste of even what we ate a few minutes before. In one notable experiment, shoppers were asked to choose a favorite of two jams. A few minutes later, researchers then gave each taster a second sample. Only this was a sample of the other jam, the one they had not preferred. Most everyone confirmed that this was indeed their favorite and went on and on about how great it was. This phenomenon apparently is called choice blindness. One of the implications is that the first and last bites are most memorable, which is why tasting menus work really well. In a way, having no memory of how a meal tasted is good. We have to eat to survive. Not being able to accurately, in our minds, bring to life the true flavors, aromas, sounds, and textures keeps us looking forward to another meal and to stay on the insatiable, unquenchable search for another memorable experience. Maybe it's important that we have to enjoy it all over again every time. So, all I have of the string of summertime extended family feasts is the memory of having had a wonderful time, not this cross-modal experience of eating the food itself. Does this mean I can't really reenact the uncomfortable sensation of breadcrumbs falling from my uncle's mouth that went down my shoe? I loved that he always wanted me to sit next to him. Well, that's all I've got for you on this episode of Talk to Me About Food. Thanks for listening, and I do hope you come back for more. Please also check out www.talktomeaboutfood.com to read related musings about the forces impacting our food choices on my blog. 